All right. If I can go ahead and invite everyone to have a seat. Thank you for being willing to chat. And uh, we're just glad you're here. Um, and, you know, but during this time of year, it's good to have the opportunity to worship uh, and to be reminded of, um, you know, really the, uh, the depth of what is happening in Christmas. Um, this, we call the season Advent, and so there's a little slide up there with the word Advent on it. And Advent really is the season um, and a word that means coming. And so the idea of Advent is really that we look back to Christ's first coming, and we look forward to his future coming, right? And so that ultimately everything that we're doing, the Christmas trees and the celebrations and the presents and all of these things, are really all about this idea of Christ's coming 2,000 years ago, but our hope that he'll come again, right? And so we have hope uh, because of God's work in our life, and we have hope because of his son, Jesus. Um, Actually, one of the things that we do sometimes is we will um, pull scriptures out of something that's called the liturgical calendar. And the liturgical calendar is this calendar that's used really globally, and they have prescribed verses that you read and preach out of, all these different kind of things. And what's interesting is they're not always super clear shepherd passages or angel passages. Sometimes they're a little more obscure. Uh, But again, they're always point towards this idea of coming. And today, we're going to be looking at one of those passages, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'll get there in just a moment. But before we jump in, let me take a moment and let's, uh, let's pray. Father, um, thank you so much uh, that we have an opportunity to be reminded um, of our hope in your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you that even as these kiddos um, stood up here this morning, we can look at them and we can be reminded of the hope that we have in you uh, to make sure that their lives matter. Um, to make sure that, uh, that we pray for them and that we, we remember that our hope for our children is found in your work in their heart and your work in them redeeming them and drawing them to yourself. Father, we pray for these little children. I pray for the people in the room this morning that we would remember that your work in us is, um, is to woo us to yourself, um, to help us to believe that you are a good father, uh, to help us to believe that our hope uh, is in your Son, Jesus, as our Savior. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would work in us. I pray this morning that you wouldn't leave anyone um, or let anyone leave this room today without having had an encounter with you coming towards them in their lives. Father, I pray that we would respond uh, by trusting you and trusting in your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, back in July the 1st of 1957, there's a man named David Steves, and I'm gonna, I've got a picture of him up here, kind of a cool-looking guy with a beard. And uh, David Steves was a, a test pilot, and what that means is that he flew jets and other planes that, were, uh, that really weren't fully approved yet. And so, on July 1st, 1957, he climbed into his test plane, and he started flying over the Sierra Nevada mountains. And you can just imagine how beautiful that would be, to be flying over this sort of snow-capped wilderness in the United States. Uh, He was 23. He had a wife that was 21. He had a newborn baby girl. And as they were, he was flying up there over the Sierra Nevada mountains at 33,000 feet. Uh, There was an explosion in the cabin of the plane. And when something in the plane exploded, he immediately passed out. And when he woke up again a few moments later, the T-33, this test plane that he was flying over the Sierra Nevada mountains, was spiraling down towards earth. And again, you can just imagine you know, putting yourself in his shoes or in his flight suit at that moment, that, you know, all of these things must go through your mind, you know, your wife, your daughter, you know, what you need to do in order to save your life. He quickly punched the eject button, and he flew out of the now burning plane, 
And as he flew out of the plane, two of the panels on his parachute caught on fire. And so as he began to fall towards the earth, he didn't have all the panels sort of slowing his descent down toward the mountains. And so when he landed uh, into the Sierra Nevada mountains up in one of the high peaks, he landed so hard that he broke both his ankles, right? And so he sort of laid there on the mountainside for a little while. And he basically said, you know, I remembered my training. And he said, I didn't have my survival gear. I didn't have my survival suit or, or the things I would ordinarily have when I was flying. And so he said, I had to basically sort of cover up underneath my partially burned parachute beneath the shade of a rock and I hid myself out of the wind. And he said, I knew my training was that I needed to stay there until I was rescued. And so he said, I huddled up there underneath my parachute, really with nothing to eat except for some snow to try to drink every now and then. And he said, I sat there for the first day and no one came. Sat there for the second day, no one came. Sat there for the third day, no one came. Of course, during this whole time, his ankles are shattered. He's probably in miserable pain. Now he's starving. And, and he said on the fourth day, he realized that it looked like nobody was coming. And so he said, I knew I needed to make my way on my own out of the wilderness. And so he began to sort of, you know, crawl down and slide down and when possible, use a stick to sort of walk down out of the mountains. And over the next several weeks, he survived by eating insects, by eating dandelions, by, you know, drinking snow to get some liquid. He said he would eat grass snakes. He said about three weeks into this ordeal of trying to come out of the wilderness and to find some, some humanity, he said he ran across an old cabin, and he broke into the cabin, and he found some old rusty fish hooks and caught some fish out of a creek, and that provided him with a little bit of sustenance. And then a few days later, he was able to, uh, to trap a deer in the mountains, and so you know, he's surviving in any way possible. Well, on day 54, he was literally sort of at the end of his uh, ability to survive, and two campers came upon him in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And they brought him to a ranger's station where he was rescued. He was given food, he was given water, he was given clothing. He was able to call his wife, he was able to call his family and to let them know that he had been in the wilderness for the last 54 days. And what was amazing is the Air Force had declared him dead. And so a man in uniform had walked up to his wife's door with papers saying, we're sorry that your husband passed away. And so all of a sudden when he you know, reappeared out of the wilderness and was alive, you know, this was a big news story. Everybody was excited. Everybody was thrilled. And so they took him to this Air Force base. They flew his wife in, and uh, she met him there on the tarmac, and they hugged, and they kissed, and they celebrated. And uh, he had sort of been saved out of the wilderness. He had gone from 195 pounds down to 145 pounds over the course of that 54-day period. Well, you can imagine the news cycle covering David Steves and just sort of being mesmerized by the story of of heroism and and survival and all these things. Everybody was sort of loving him. They were fawning over him. And then there came a report out um, from one of the uh, the news magazines. They had interviewed someone, and someone in the military who basically wouldn't state their name said they doubted the veracity or the truth of David Steves' story. And so all of a sudden, the other news agencies, other papers, Time Magazine, and some of these other uh, magazines and publications started talking to one another, and uh, they began to try to discredit his story because it was almost a story that was too good to be true. And in fact, somebody started making up a story that he had intentionally landed the plane in Mexico and sold it then to the Russians and then sort of hiked his way back. And so he had gone all of a sudden from this great hero, right, who had gone through this harrowing survival story to now somebody who was possibly a traitor in the Cold War. And what was interesting is that uh, the military who had initially supported him all of a sudden began to sort of retract their support of him and, and basically say publicly that they didn't think it was possible that he could have actually survived what he claimed to, to survive. Not only that, but then his wife actually filed divorce papers against him. 
And so all of a sudden, the media, the military, his own family, everyone was against him. And you can imagine that he felt utterly and completely and totally alone, right? I mean, just imagine the wilderness of that experience. What was interesting is, about a year and a half later, the, uh, the military granted him a release, and so he be- became a civilian, divorced from his wife, separated from his child. And he spent really the next 19 years of his life looking for the wreckage of the plane up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. He would rent planes and fly over. He would go up on hiking trips and fly over and never could find any trace of the wreck, right? Well, then what's interesting is he passed away in 1976, and less than a year later, some hikers found the wreckage of his plane in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And so all of a sudden, all these people that had turned their back on him, all these people that were supposed to protect him, all these people that were supposed to be there for him, all these people that were supposed to support him, the military, the media, the American people, his own wife, all of these people were faced with the reality that he had actually been telling the truth 20 years ago when he wrecked his plane on July 1st, 1957, right? Just what what a crazy story. And what was interesting is, as he was interviewed after his wilderness experience, one of the things that he said you know, in the wilderness, not only the physical wilderness, but the emotional and relational wilderness of the following days of that tragedy. He said, when I grew up, I grew up in a Christian home, but he said, I wasn't particularly religious. I was kind of a typical boneheaded kid. And he said, not only that, but he said, as I went into the military, I began to pursue things that probably weren't very good. And, and in fact, he said, um, when I was up there in the wilderness, he said, I was really faced with having this encounter with God. I was alone. I was desperate right? I had no hope whatsoever. And so he said, all of a sudden, I turned to God. And in turning to God in the wilderness of that experience, I had to confess the reality of my sin to a holy God. I had to tell him all the ways in which I'd failed my wife and failed my daughter and failed to pursue him. And he said, up there in the mountains, I turned to God in the wilderness. I repented and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And that was the thing that enabled me to survive that wilderness experience. Really amazing story. And, uh, and again, a story of, of utter tragedy and somebody being left alone. Some of you in the room this morning understand the wilderness, right? And, and maybe for some of you, maybe it has been a physical wilderness. But more often than not, and probably for most of us, we've gone through wilderness periods of time in our lives where we felt alone, where we felt rejected, where we felt unprotected by the very people that were supposed to protect us, right? But what's interesting is the Bible over and over and over again paints these pictures of the wilderness as the very place where God comes to us, and the very place where we turn to him and trust in him in the middle of our despair. And often that turning to him yields confession, sort of admitting the depth of the brokenness of our hearts and our souls and our lives, and it yields repentance as well, where we turn to God and we say, I have no hope but in you, therefore I've got to trust and turn towards you. That wilderness is where we find ourselves this morning in this reading of Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to turn there really quickly Uh, You can see it up on the screen. Mark begins this prologue, and this term wilderness is used four times, not in these verses, but in the prologue. And so it's very clear that in the midst of this introduction to his book, he's very concerned about meeting people where they are, alone, separate, far away from God. In fact, the period of time that Mark is writing, there's been 400 years since the last prophet. The Greeks and the Romans have overcome the Israelites. And so you can imagine that the Israelites, those people who were Jews to whom Mark is writing, would have felt like they were in a wilderness where they were separated and far from hope and far from God. But it's into this physical and spiritual wilderness that Mark writes this gospel. Let's begin with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel, right? We throw that word gospel around all the time. Part of what you need to understand is that term gospel was a secular term 
that uh, was really hijacked by the gospel writers, the authors of the four gospels. And so this idea of gospel really was a proclamation of good news. When a royal baby was born, when a victory was won by a nation, uh, the Romans, they would send out these heralds into the countryside announcing the gospel, the good news of the birth, the good news of victory. And in this case, these people to whom Mark is writing, they're in the wilderness and they're severely in need of good news. It's true for most of us today as well. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So in this, we see that the good news is an event, right? We saw it this morning. There is a star. There is a baby born. There are angels. There are wise men. There are shepherds. It is an event, but it's also more than an event. It's a person, right? That's what Mark is telling us. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God. He had come to rescue his people. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so Mark here intentionally combines two passages, one from Isaiah 40, which we're going to read a little bit later, one from Malachi 3. He gives credit to Isaiah because Isaiah is is the more prominent prophet. The point, however, of both of these passages is to announce that God is sending someone to prepare the way for the God-man, that God is sending someone to announce the coming of the one who will rescue his people. And then in verse 4, we read this little section that John, that is John the Baptist, appeared, right? And so Mark is very clearly saying that messenger that Malachi 3 talk about and Isaiah 40 talk about appeared, and it was John the Baptist. He was baptizing in the wilderness. And so, again, very quickly, you need to understand that baptism was really, it preceded what we understand as New Testament baptism, where John the Baptist was baptizing people. It was actually part of, uh, of some regulations that involved non-Jews entering into Judaism. Not only were they circumcised, the men, but they were also washed with water. And this baptism symbolized that they were made clean. It really looked forward to Jesus But John the Baptist, as he baptizes both Jews and Gentiles in the wilderness, part of what he's saying is is that your nationality, your religiosity isn't enough to earn you favor with God. It's not the way in which you're clean before God. You need to be cleansed by God in order to come into the family of God. And of course, it's looking forward to Jesus, back to the scripture, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him, that is John the Baptist, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." The mission of John the Baptist was to call people to confession. The mission of John the Baptist was to call people to repentance, right? The mission of John the Baptist was to baptize people, but ultimately his purpose was to point us towards a Savior who, through the Holy Spirit, would make all the signs and symbolism of baptism real in our hearts and in our lives, right? That's what John the Baptist came to do. This is a little passage of Scripture And for those of you who have any sort of theological aptitude, you look at it, and there are key words throughout this passage, and you think there's probably eight or nine different things we could talk about. I'm very quickly going to talk about four this morning, and they're going to be pretty quick. The first is going back to this concept or idea of wilderness, that John the Baptist is in the wilderness. Now, some of you today in this room 
have been wandering or are wandering in the wilderness. You are lost, you're alone, you feel spiritually hungry and thirsty, maybe relationally hungry and thirsty, you feel helpless, you're suffering and you feel separated from God. But you this morning need to know that it's precisely when you, when we're in the wilderness, that God comes to us. It's precisely when we're in the wilderness that everything becomes clear. It's precisely in the wilderness when we can see the reality of our hearts, we can see sort of the reality of our lives and the ways in which we've interacted with God. It's in the wilderness that you most acutely know your need, and it's in the wilderness that you actually can hear God's voice, right? So it's a painful thing, but it's a good thing. There's a man named John Muir who uh, was a naturalist and a philosopher back in the 1800s, uh, interestingly enough, he came from a strong Christian background and uh, memorized the entire New Testament. Here's what he had to say about this idea of wilderness. He says this, The clearest way into the universe is through a forest wilderness. Thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people, by the way, he's writing in about 1830 here, so he's talking about tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people. Back then, how much more does this apply today? are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that, wild, that wildness is a necessity. Now, he's thinking physically, but he's also to some degree thinking spiritually, and it's a reminder that we oftentimes need to be in the wilderness in order to hear God's voice. So when John's audience heard this message in the wilderness, it led to three things, and we can see these pretty clearly in this passage of Scripture. When they were in the wilderness, one of the things that it led them to was confession, Right? And so this idea of confessing in the Greek means to say it out loud along with someone else. To say it out loud along with someone else. It's almost like helping one of our children to confess something they've done sometimes. Our tendency when we confess is to say part of the truth. You know what I mean? Like, I did it one time, kind of, and then you throw some blame in there. But when you confess biblically, it means to say what actually happened all the way with someone else. In other words, you're not trying to blame anybody else anymore. You're not trying to hold on to your innocence anymore. You're simply saying, hey, look, I need to get this off my chest in its entirety. And so ultimately, that's what's being described here is these people in the wilderness have come to a point of saying, I can only trust in you, God, right? And so I've got to turn to you and I've got to confess the brokenness of my heart. And when we confess and admit to another person, in this case, our high priest, when we confess the whole thing, we remind ourselves of the reality and the depravity of our brokenness, right? God already knows it, so I don't know why we're hiding it from him. But when we confess to him, we confess the reality in its entirety of our depravity and our brokenness. Frederick Buechner, who is a, a Greek a theologian, says this, a Greek, yeah, a German theologian says this, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything that he doesn't already know, right? I mean, God's omniscient. He knows our hearts better than we do. He knows our actions better than we do. He remembers what we said and what we did better than we do. All of us here today have offended God in thought, word, and deed. But until we confess them, that is, our sins, uh, there, there's an abyss that exists between us and God, he says. When you confess them, they become that bridge. Part of what happens to the people in the wilderness is they confess. And they confess in entirety their hearts and their brokenness and their minds and their words and their deeds to God. And it's part of what happens when we come into the presence of Jesus is we realize that he sees us for who we are and therefore we can say along with him what we've really done, who we are, confession. The second thing we see in this passage is this idea of repentance. 
So part of John's baptism was not simply acknowledging sin or confessing it. That's good, but it's not enough. Actual repentance is this Greek word called metanoeo, which means to change your mind. But really, holistically, it means not only to change your mind. In other words, you say, I'm worse than I thought, right? I'm more broken than I realized. It's where you say, my selfishness undergirds not only my bad sort of decisions and bad behavior, but selfishness even undergirds my good decisions. It's it's changing your mind about your own heart and the way you think about things. But it's also changing your direction, right? It's also saying, I'm going to turn from a life of self-protection. I'm going to turn from a life of control. I'm going to turn from a life of trusting in all of the things that I can do to trusting in God alone. It's choosing a life of self-sacrifice and submission to God. That's what repentance really is. It's changing our mind, our heart, and our direction. When Martin Luther nailed up the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, the very first of his theses said this. He says this. He said, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Let me read that one more time. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life, not just of new believers, not just of people before they become Christians, but the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, the more we walk with God, the more closely we walk with God, the more we realize our brokenness. I've got a friend who describes uh, understanding his sinfulness as basically saying, I used to feel like I lived in a one-level house that was on a concrete slab, and my sin was just about as thick as that concrete slab. And he said, then I realized that my house wasn't on a concrete slab, but rather it was on sort of a crawl space. And my sin was really the depth of that crawl space. And then he said, as I walked with God more and more and knew him more and more, he said, I realized there actually was a, a little cavern beneath that crawl space. And beneath that cavern, filling it was all of my sin and all of my wretchedness. And then he went on to say, beneath that cavern, there's even more. And so the closer we get with God, the more we walk with him, the more we realize that we're far, far more sinful than we could dare to ever imagine. But the good news of the gospel, of course, is that we're far more loved and far more forgiven than we would ever imagine either. There is a, a man named Thaddeus of uh, Vito Venica, who is a, a priest. He says this. He says, no sin is unforgivable except the sin of unrepentance, right? The only thing that's unforgivable is not to turn to God, to not to trust in him and repent and trust upon Jesus. We need repentance. You see, repentance is not only going to a priest and confessing. We fall many times during our life, and it is absolutely necessary to reveal everything, that's that confession, to a priest who is a witness to our repentance. The good news is we don't confess to a human priest. We confess to our ultimate priest who already knows the depth of our sins far, far more than we do, and someone who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. It's to Jesus that we confess. It's to Jesus that we repent. Many of us in this room this morning need to change the direction of our inner being. We do need to change the way that we think right? It may be that our inner being is envious and covets a life or, or possessions of, of someone else, right? It may be that your inner being is bent on holding someone accountable for some way in which they've offended you, and your inner being needs to be turned towards forgiving them. Either way, our life needs to be a life of repentance towards God. The last thing we see in this passage is this beautiful concept of forgiveness. That's, that's ultimately what John the Baptist is doing, John the Baptist is ultimately saying this. He's saying all of us need to hear and believe that forgiveness is offered to all those who trust in the eternal Passover lamb. 
that forgiveness is offered to all those who confess and repent and trust in Jesus as their only Savior. I mentioned earlier that at the very beginning of the book of Mark, Mark quotes Isaiah 40. Well, anytime you see an Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament, it's really important to go back and read that passage and to try to see what God is saying through that Old Testament prophet. And so we're going to go back to Isaiah 40 and listen to the words of Isaiah 40. Listen to this concept of forgiveness that was not only offered to the listeners of John the Baptist, but this idea of forgiveness that's offered to you and to me as well. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1, says this, and God is speaking through Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, right? Your penance has been done for you, right? It's been taken care of. It's like when you're at a restaurant and you get ready to pay the bill and somebody says, somebody paid the bill for you. There's nothing else owed. Her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins, right? And so for those of you in the room this morning who think, well, that thing I did when I was in college was too bad. There's no way God can forgive me for that. And part of what God says is, it's been paid for twice over, right? Or the person in this room who says, I've committed that sin so many times over and over and over and over again, surely there can't be any forgiveness left. And God says to Isaiah, it's been paid for two times over, right? Right? Some of you in this room are basically saying, my sin is it's not so much doing a horrible thing once or doing a horrible thing many times. My sin is that I, I, I just barely trust God. I just barely trust that he's good. I just barely trust that he really has what's best in, in, in his best interest for me. I just barely trust that Jesus is able to love me and care for me. And God says, even that sin I've paid double for, all of your sins. Verse 3, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Right? What's more glorious than a God who looks at his children who've rebelled against him and, and offers forgiveness, right? Two times more than you need to be forgiven. What's more glorious than that? What's more glorious than a parent forgiving a child? What's more glorious than a spouse forgiving another spouse? The glory of the Lord will be revealed in his forgiveness, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, right? It's not your mouth that matters. It's not the mouth of the world that matters. It's not the mouth of someone who would seek to convict you that matters. It's not the mouth of Satan that matters. The mouth of the Lord has spoken, right? All of your sins have been forgiven. Forgiveness, more than enough, is offered you. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Who you'd argue with him? The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The creator of the ends of the earth, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You've been forgiven. He will not grow tired or weary, right? He won't grow tired or weary with your sins. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's more than enough. His forgiveness is more than enough. And his understanding, no one can fathom. It doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to me. But the mouth of the Lord has spoken in the wilderness. You're forgiven. He gives strength to the weak and increases the power of the weak. 
Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, right? Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Why? Because of God's forgiveness, right? The mouth of the Lord has spoken. You are forgiven. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the children we saw on the stage today. We thank you for the songs that were sung. We thank you for the scripture that has been quoted. Father, I look out at this room and I thank you for each of these souls um, who you have created in your image. They are filled with dignity. More than they realize, we are filled with dignity because we've been created in your image. You are the creator. You are the everlasting God, the King of kings. Father, we are filled with dignity, but we're also filled with depravity. Father, we're not only more powerful and more capable than we realize, but we're also more broken than we realize. So, Father, I pray that you would woo us to yourself today, um, that you would draw us to yourself today, that we would confess, that we would repent knowing that your mouth has spoken and that you have offered each of us forgiveness in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of your precious son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.